Here's another podcast episode brought to you by no one, sponsored by nobody. So this is going to be a different kind of episode. I'm just going to talk, and I might go off the rails, and I might get back on the rails, but I want to borrow something from Krishnamurti and say that if you want to listen to this, by all means, do. But I think the most beneficial thing you can do is to not focus so much on what I'm saying and how your mind is going to like or reject or judge or critique or whatever it does. Instead of listening to what I'm saying like that, watch your own minds, watch your consciousness react and see where, what you then think. If I say something like, what, what does that invoke in you? So you're turning, you're listening to me, but you're turning your attention inward to observe your own movement of mind. So the topic I want to just kind of riff on a little bit is this whole thing around doing things that are uncomfortable being good for us and how do we know when something is uncomfortable and it's good for us versus when is something uncomfortable triggering that we have aversion to that is actually just a very simple um, intuition or knowing that like, yeah, that's not good for us. So an example is like intermittent fasting or fasting and cold water plunging has become like such a health thing, but relative to it becoming a thing that then is being accepted as being good for you, not eating food and getting in super cold water would be like, I don't want to do that. So we would never do that unless there was science or some external thing telling us, oh, it's good for you. Obviously, people have known about their benefits before science or what we call science now, um, but I digress. Well, and actually, I think this is a really interesting piece because that, to me, as I'm listening to it, is a perfect example of conditioning. And it's a perfect example, perfect example of part of the issue that we're all faced with as modern people. And the example is before modern times, fasting, I mean, fasting is the longest practiced health intervention. It's not as Dr. Um, Fung says, it's not only the newest and greatest, but it's also the most tried and true original health intervention. So it's like, well, how do we know this before we could get into the science of proving it? And it's like, well, I think earlier humans, in whatever ways, were tuned into different forms of intelligence that weren't, as, that weren't so cerebral. And so part of the Part of our struggle of distinguishing what is good for us versus what is um, not good for us 
we have a very hard time with this question. We have a very hard time with everything in general from this mindset that is the mind overly identifying with itself because the mind wants, it needs it to be proven by science. And now science has become the new religious sanction of the planet because everyone's so devoutly wanting to be on the side of science. But science in the very definition of it, and I find this to be hilarious, in the definition of science, it literally says like the intellectual pursuit or the, you know, the 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 study of measurable phenomena and things such as that. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. But the way it's worded even is like, well, so science then is the study of things that we can understand. And then my first thought is like, wow, talk about a limited lens because the amount of things we can understand is minuscule. Like dark matter is like 70 or 80% of space is made up of this dark matter that we don't know what it is. So it's like the majority of the cosmos is made of something that we don't know what it is. And not only do we not know what it is, Neil deGrasse Tyson says we might as well call it Wilma and Betty because using the word dark matter or dark energy implies that it's either matter or energy. But he's like, we have such, like we have no idea what it is to the point that to use language like that is potentially part of the problem because it's we can't help but then put it in this category of like, oh, it's some kind of matter. It might be the absence of matter for all we know. So as we move along, I just wanted, I, I wanted to jump in and say this because I think that so much of what health and wellness or people trying to get well, feel well, heal, live a life they want to live, it always comes back to mindset for me and in my experience because as you can see from what I just said, but really I want you to experience this for yourself, that it's our way of thinking about the thing from the beginning that limits us from being able to actually know what it is. And to borrow from Krishnamurti again, he talks about it in a very similar way, actually, to um, Joe Dispenza talking about the known is what the mind knows. And in order to grow, transform, change, and like the, the solution to all of these problems lies in the unknown, lies beyond the mind. So he uses the example of like, you know, we fight a war to then change power or government to make better policies. But the policies are made up policies from the same level of thinking that was there at, before that policy when there was a problem. So none of it's actually creating a real change. It's just creating different rules and guidelines and structures that, yes, are improving, but we continue to have these issues and we continue to focus on trying to make a different policy or to change things. And, you know, 
Krishnamurti's point and Joe Dispenza's point, Joe Dispenza literally proving all of this with quantum physics and advanced neuroscience, is that no solution, nothing happens that actually fixes the problem until we actually move beyond the level of thinking that the problem originated from. And to me, it's like, well, that's what Albert Einstein said, of the solution to the problem can't be found from the same level of thinking that the problem originated from. So with health, it's like, yeah, you know, do intermittent fasting, get in some cold water, you know, run, do sprints, do high intensity interval training, um, with breath work. It's like breathe, breathe as full as you can. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep going. Breathe as full as you can. Don't stop. Keep going. Relax, relax, keep going. Don't stop. And it's like, you know, you've got tetany. You're like, this is insane. And you keep going because you know, it's good for you. And then a lot of people are like, I'm never doing that again. There's no way that's good for me. And they're just completely like, you know, not interested. So it's like, well, is it good for you? Is it not good for you? And how do we know when something's good for us and when something's not good for us if we're now being told that what's good for us is discomfort? And how that's scary because in in like a cult situation, you know, the the leader of the cult is like, yeah, this this is all of these you're having aversion to, you know, to buying guns and like carrying out all of this crazy stuff because it's actually a part of your growth. Like using that as an example of how, um, you know, if we're being told that things that are uncomfortable are good for us, that can really, you can see the potential for that really being leveraged to manipulate or control us which then is a whole nother collective trauma pattern that we respond to in various degrees of insanity. So, just taking a moment, coming back inward, noticing your own mind. and what it's jumping to based off of what I'm saying. So just going really slowly, the question is, how do we know if something's good for us because it's triggering or we have aversion to it versus how do we know that the trigger or the aversion is actually something to take seriously. And there's two things I want to speak to right now. One is it's always changing and everyone's different. And the other one is the way our mind is conditioned to think about this question is part of the problem. So the example I'll use is we're told, you know, 
to count calories, say, and then exercise. So we're doing that because we'll lose weight and it'll make us healthy. But we're not necessarily being told to do that in a way that's connected to how it feels or to how we're relating to doing it because we just want to get done with it because we don't like it. And in the same way with, say, breath work, it's like, keep breathing, breathe as full as you can, don't stop, you do it for an hour, keep going. We're doing it because we're being told that it'll be good for us. And we want, we want to be good. We want to be virtuous people. We want to be all of these things. But what if we just stopped right there and asked ourselves a deeper question, which is, instead of doing these things with this mentality, this mental program that is to be better, because that's connected to the conditioning, to the mind, that's connected to violence, it's connected to the, the, the nature of our society is based off of competition, rivalry, and that's what creates violence. So we're, if we're running, you know, 10 miles a day and restricting calories and we're not present with ourselves because we're just forcing ourselves to do it, that's violent. Would you not agree that that's not very connected? We're not doing that in a very gracious way. And in the same way, if we're breathing as full as we can for an hour and somebody's yelling at us to keep going... That might feel very violent. So the opportunity to me is to notice and to ask the deeper question of this mindset, this way that I am never questioned that I am this way. What if I question that? So instead of asking the question, how do I know if something is good for me? because it's uncomfortable versus it being uncomfortable being a sign that it's not good for me. What if we stopped in the moment of doing it, didn't stop doing it, continued to do it, and started to get into maybe our unconscious way of relating to it and seeing how can we do this in a way that's present and connected and, and not violent? not coming from this place of I need to be something I'm not, I need to heal myself, and I'm not okay the way that I am, and all of that. And the other piece is, or another aspect of that is comparing ourselves, of thinking it's like, well, if this person does all of these things, and they're really healthy. So then we compare ourselves, or this person is so emotionally mature or spiritually evolved. So we want to be like that. 
so we want to copy what they're doing. So it's like, you know, you can see it in the media and the world. It's like with podcasts, it's like, what's your morning routine? What's like, no, I don't want to hear about what you do. I want to hear about how you do it. And how is, how did you used to be that makes it so what the way you practice showing up for it is the medicine Because if I'm someone who is prone to wanting to just be in soft and fuzzy experiences, then yeah, if I work with a mentor or if I do something to optimize my growth and that person's specialty is helping me grow, I'm probably going to get asked for my own benefit to kind of put a little bit more pep in my step and see what it's like for me to go into that edge of exercising or doing things that I've always hated. But if I'm someone who's always done that, then I actually am going to grow the most from relaxing a little bit. And I'm jumping in to do a little overdub again because... I just want to really specifically point out that the point of all of these things, the point of exposing ourselves to something that's uncomfortable, the point of running or counting calories even, like if that's that's what you're doing, none of it is of any value really without... At like as it is just standing alone, it's like if if you were to watch a replay of your life and you watch yourself like weighing chicken breast and meal prepping and then going through your exercise routine and doing all of that, you would be like, "Wow, well, like what was I doing? I wasn't connecting to nature or to myself. I was going through all of these automated regimens that I was told." that would essentially ensure my salvation (laughs) based off of what I, what my values were. And then you're dead looking back at your life, realizing like, oh, my values were so part of the conditioning of society telling me that I needed to look a certain way, perform at a certain level, have a certain number in my bank account and drive a certain car. And it's incredibly sad. And you realize how, meaningful life is just as it is in the feeling of going through the experiences of it. So if you're doing breath work and I'm telling you to keep breathing or I'm telling you to, um, you know, say you're actually working with me or you're working with somebody else and they're and this a trainer and they're telling you, it's like, well, I think... They're convinced that having you exercise this amount is going to really help. And it's like, well, will it help? I don't know. Do I trust this person? I'm not sure. I just started working with them. So it's like, well, you got, you got to experiment. And so what I'm wanting to really point out is that don't do anything. And this is Krishnamurti says, you know, if you're dumb enough to try to get someone to do a method and they're dumb enough to do it because you're telling them to, (laughs) 
which I, which I just love because what he's pointing at is that the only thing that's of real value in all of these situations, whether it's a modality that you're doing or teaching or anything, is how are you relating to it yourself? How are you relating to the modality? But more than that, how are you relating to yourself? The modality is a structure of like, okay, I'm going to run a mile and I'm going to be in relationship with my inner critic the whole time. Because if somebody's telling you to breathe, don't stop breathing. It's like, well, you don't want to do it just because they're telling you to do it. But whatever comes up that's hard, they're encouraging you to continue to go, be not not to just push through and disregard your experience to get somewhere, but to be but to keep going and be attentive. And so that's why that's the power of breath work because we're breathing unconsciously in our life and then we bring our attention to our breath and we start to then become aware of the way we're doing it, which I talk about a little bit later on. Um, so just to to round out this little... Um, interjected overdub by saying that breath work specifically I found to be the most powerful at this because it's almost for the sole purpose of explicitly becoming aware of all of the unconscious ways that we relate to ourselves that perpetuate the problem. And when you start to become aware of that, then you start to go to the gym or go, I keep using fitness analogies, you start to go to your job and you realize, oh my gosh, my job is one thing and I thought I hated it, but I really just hated my experience of it because of the way I was unconsciously relating to myself the whole time. And then you can start to see how your job is a great opportunity to practice breaking this pattern, whatever it is that is unconscious, that perpetuates the suffering that you are in because of your relationship, the abusive relationship that you're in with yourself. Oh, and one more thing, because I think this is so... This is bound to happen to everyone. To see, to, to begin to put an end to the abusive relationship that you're in with yourself, that you're choosing or allowing to continue. When we start to come into contact with some aspect of that, because obviously it's like some of us is like, yeah, we're, we're that's, you might be listening to this, be like, oh my God, that's me totally. Like I, I make myself go for runs and like I, I hate myself the entire time and, and it's just the shittiest thing. Like there's, there's that type of being in an abusive relationship with yourself, but there's all these really subtle ways and a lot of it is obviously unconscious. So when we start to do something with a coach or a mentor, guide, a teacher, and we start to come into contact with this part of us, Typically, 
what we do first is we want to blame the person that's doing it. So that's part of why the dynamic and why what Krishnamurti says is so funny. If you're dumb enough to try to get someone to do a method because you think they should and they're dumb enough to follow you, to me, the reason that's so hilarious is because it really does set up this dynamic of like, well, if that's the case, it's kind of like you're setting yourselves up to be in this power struggle with them of trying to get them to do it and they're going to inevitably not want to do it. So to be a really good teacher, it's like same thing with being a really good parent. How do you kind of trick them into thinking that they want to do it? Because they do want to do it. So you kind of need to just get out of the way, but also be of use by being able to offer and help and guide or give advice. But you're wanting it to obviously always be, you know, asking them a question that helps them see something for themselves. That's why Krishnamurti said at the in one of his books, and what I told you is like, don't listen to what I'm saying and take my word for it. Watch your mind's reaction to what I'm saying and learn about yourself while listening to me and come to your own ideas about it. Um, so yeah, I wanted to just say that because what we resist persists and what we feel we can heal. Like that's a really common saying or rule of thumb. And so that then is also part of this dynamic of if you're wanting, if someone's teaching you a method and you're resisting it, the dynamic is such the laws of physics, I guess the laws of nature is that they're, they're going to want to get you to do it even more because they're like, this person's really resisting. But if they're a really good teacher, they're not going to play that game with you because that's just kind of this unconscious dynamic of a power struggle of trying to get somebody to do something that they don't want to do. So my point here is that if that's happening with you in, in an outside source, the opportunity for you is always to work on the part of yourself that that outside source is representing. Because obviously, if you're in an abusive relationship with somebody on the outside, that's only happening because of how fully submitted you are or resigned or unconscious you are of how deeply abusive you are with yourself because otherwise you wouldn't tolerate that on the outside. So this is turning into a slightly larger um, little overdub thing here, but that's to me like inner work and the power of contemplation and taking our awareness, taking our five senses and observing what's happening on the inside of us is so powerful because with the situation I just gave, you know, you don't want to, it's not that you're doing something because someone on the outside is telling you to do it. You're doing it because it's an opportunity to come to know yourself on the inside better. And the outside representation of that is in a way a mirror, a projection, and somebody that might seem incredibly shitty if you do your work on the inside and then see them a little bit later, 
you might realize that you hated them so much because you were projecting and there was a part of you that they were triggering that you were not able to, you you did not choose to work it out with them. And that's okay because we have free will, but you're going to have to work that out inside of yourself at some point if you want to be able to move beyond that. But again, as a teacher or as a guide, the more I tell you that you need to do that, the more confusing it is because in my experience, that's not, you know, telling somebody that they need to be different is both typically connected to the truth, (laughs) you know, but that doesn't mean that it's helpful to them. So we instantly, in a way, start to see the mind, the way it relates to these questions that it wants answers on, how it just starts to, when we really tune into where that's coming from, we realize it's it's not it doesn't actually make sense it makes it it makes sense to the mind but it doesn't make sense in this deeper way and i know we all have our own experiences and we know things based off of those experiences. So our knowledge is memory that's accumulated. And this is coming from Krishnamurti. Knowing the self and really knowing things isn't coming from this accumulation of past memories. It's coming from our ability to do what I said to do at the beginning of this, of watching your own consciousness move and knowing yourself in the moment because it's actually the letting go of yesterday it's the letting go of these of all this stuff that we accumulate this memory that allows us to actually know ourselves in the moment and as we move forward for example like I did a breathwork session yesterday, and I'm getting really good. (laughs) And again, I can't help but use words like good and bad. I'm getting really good in this way that is is good based off of my situation, which is I'm very good. Previously, I've been very good at being disciplined to do it and then really doing it full on. And the part of me that doesn't want to do it just gets like clobbered which has a consequence of there's a part of me that doesn't know how to do things without clobbering an aspect of myself which is a little bit violent so it's the most loving thing to do to do it but you can still do a loving thing with a level of violence versus what I've been practicing is what if I didn't need, what if I let that go? What if I just breathe as full as I can as, and as consciously as I can? And instead of it being like I'm trying to complete something or get somewhere, 
I'm in every moment being as consciously as I can, relaxing and opening and really making amends with that part of myself that I have been so hard on because I'm the perfect example of someone that, you know, it was addicted to exercise and pushing myself and restricting my calories and, you know, I'm going to be skinny, fit, hot, and epic because of my own determination to do that. But I did those things as a, you know, teenager into my 20s, just the most, um, the most amount of that mental violence turned inwards. Everybody's like, oh, you're such a nice guy. It's like, well, I put all my anger (laughs) into this relationship I have with myself that on the outside might be like, oh, he's really motivated to like work out or he is really determined to stick with things. But all of those things have didn't last. I got injured and had consequences from all of them. And so this is why I am here now saying all this stuff because even just in the last week I I went for like a 4-mile jog, but I did it in a way that I've never done it before and I've just been having this, you know, this spiritual awakening of sorts around realizing, not just realizing with my head, but like realizing how underneath all of this is an infinite number of possibilities of ways I can relate to myself in the moment. And the most mundane life, therefore can become the most awe-inspiring, joyful experience through that. So in conclusion, you know, to take it back to the original question, how do we know when leaning into discomfort is indeed what is needed for growth versus trusting our intuition around the discomfort actually being something to listen to or to take heed of. And so obviously there's no, there's not an actual, the true nature of this question, you know, if we're asking it from the superficial mind level, we might, try to convince ourselves of a specific answer. But the reality of the situation is that we don't know. And it's up to us to practice being present with ourselves in our life and making mistakes and learning from them. And the reason breath work, the reason what I I'm so passionate about the reason I do what I do. The reason I'm passionate about it is because I've not had anything be more powerful in this specific avenue. And what I mean by that is with breath work specifically, it's there's a triggering aspect to it right off the bat. And through that, there's so much potential 
There's so many opportunities to get into our own triggers and to be in a relationship with ourselves as we're going through it and to then become more aware, so much more aware, so quickly. And the difference between meditation or other practices that are similar in their aim is that it's not as heightened. We don't get to jump quietly, quite as deeply into the deep end of the pool in a way. And so for me, the breath work, really then you come out of it and you start to realize how there's kind of only ever one process that's actually taking place and it's us with what we're unconsciously bringing into the world and then the conscious part of us trying to sort through the relationship that we're having with the world that is then caught in blaming the world for all of these things that we're actually bringing to the table that we're just unconscious of. So again, examples to me are so helpful of using something like fitness because we've all had the experience of working out or wanting to be healthy and going about it in all of these different ways. And the perfect example is someone who's goes on some health regimen and then it doesn't work. And they say that, well, that was because like, you know, that diet doesn't work or that was a fad diet. So it didn't work. It's like, if you think a diet's going to make you healthy, if you think exercise is going to make you healthy, if you think breath work's going to help you heal, all of those things are only going to be whatever you bring to them. Because if they're anything worth doing, it's going to be just a, the context of doing it is for the sake of learning about how you're actually presenting yourself to the world and and then you can start to see that. So again, there's no amount of exercise that will make you healthy. There's no amount of breath work that'll make you healthy. There's no diet that'll make you healthy. Nothing makes you healthy. Health is an idea and the path the thing that we can actually do that's not just a fictitious idea or concept is awareness. Can we be aware of the way we're doing this? And can we be aware specifically of what we previously were not aware of? And if we can do that and we can practice that, then that's like, that's the path. Awareness is what heals. Awareness that's not living in the past. Awareness that's present, that is open to seeing now in a way that it has never seen it before by letting go of all of the accumulated memories and pictures and ideas and things that are um, biased towards whatever upset you're wanting to hold on to or whatever thing you're still not able to accept or let go or have digested yet. So thanks for listening. Cut the Fru-Fru episode four. I think that this was. And I just, I want to say that 
part of the intention for me in doing this is because I want to let people in. I want to have a bread, a trail of breadcrumbs leading towards what it is that I offer because what I offer is, is, um, guidance, support, um, and enthusiasm and experience around everything that I've just talked about and all the things I've talked about in previous episodes. So if you feel like what I'm talking about is barking up your tree, then please get in touch. I'm happy, would love to do, to just have a conversation, you know, uh, a free consultation, if you will. Um, because part of what I'm, part of what I, what I'm wanting to speak to in the podcast is really like, how do you market something? How do you put yourself out there when you have something to offer, when what you're offering is kind of the inverse of what everybody wants? Everybody wants what they want based off of this level of acquisition, comparison, and competitive mental violence. Like, as Krishnamurti says, like, that that's the... F- building blocks or the baseline of society. So there's different cults and different religious groups and all of, you know, there's all of these um, subcultures that then try to create a different way. And what I'm trying to do is just speak the truth, which is to go to another extreme is obviously not the way because you're still operating from, you're doing different things from the same level of consciousness. And so as Krishnamurti says, like, can we not have a, a, revolution, a, a revolution of where there's an actual psychological mutation that takes place, meaning that doing things a different way, creating a new culture or whatever, a new um, framework for operating doesn't change anything, like I've already said, if there's not a change that's actually happening at a fundamental level inside of us. So I'm not promoting myself as knowing the way. I'm actually almost doing the opposite of like, I don't even, I don't even have methods to give you as much as I have experience in sifting through what's important from what's not important because I've had such a challenging time of that myself. That's the only reason I'm uh, good at it because it's not that I'm good at it, it's that I have experience in it. Um, <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny, but anyways, so... Yeah, this podcast is a trail of breadcrumbs leading to asking better questions, asking um, what's really going on without all the frou-frou. And so if you want to know what's next or how can you get more, I would say go read some Krishnamurti, um, have a conversation with me, do some breath work, 
you know, breathwork's a very umbrella term. The kind of breathwork I do is called effigy breath, and it's specific in multiple ways. And then the way I work with people in it is also specific and unique because of who I am. And so um, that's that's where I would say for anyone to start. Not only would I say for anyone to start there with, if you want to work with me, if you're interested in anything, I would say start there because it'll help you get clear on whether or not you actually want to do what you think you want to do. Meaning that most of us want things like to lose weight or to be a certain level of something because of some feeling of lack and some feeling of needing that. But so much of the time, that's part of our conditioning to think that we, you know, that again, the competitive nature of our, of our culture. Um, so to me, you do, you know, do 10 effigy breathwork sessions with me and then, go into whatever you're doing next, whether it's more breath work somewhere else, having a home practice, like I'll help you piece together how to move forward from there in a way that's not replacing your programming and conditioning with someone else's, but is actually staying on the pulse, staying on the beat of who you are in your full authenticity that's not just adapting a better um, or a different set of conditioned um, rules to live by. Jabuquan. Thank you.